Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brennan B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 54th episode of the Nauticast, entitled Waking the Drogo, an analysis of Game of Thrones Daenerys 6, in which if you come at the Khaleesi, you best not miss. That's good, man. I uh, I, I can't do Omar, really. I mean, we are both from Baltimore, but uh, I really can't do like the West Baltimore uh, Black American accent necessarily. I'm more like the Irish side of the Baltimore side, the kind of Hun accent, so to speak. What are you talking about, Jeff? That's my favorite quote from HBO's Game of Thrones. <laughs> I've never heard of The Wire. Ah, yes. So if you come to Khaleesi, you best not miss. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone, Scarlet the Other Woman and Mistress of Whisperers, and our two newest members of the Small Council. You heard that right. Two newest members of the Small Council. Lord Baby, the Onion Baby, and Lord Blackheart, the Defiant, Master of Zorse. Thank you, Counselors, very much, and welcome to Lord Baby, the Onion Baby, and Lord Blackheart. Those are hell of names, brothers. I'm trying to decide whether Lord Baby and Lord Blackheart would be bitter foes or the best of friends. <laughs> And I'm going with both. I'm going to go with both at the same time. So are they frenemies? Is that what you're saying? Or are it's they like actually... It's a difficult relationship and yeah. audiences will love it over the course of seven seasons. <laughs> but no, thank you so much, of course, to all our counselors, but especially our new ones. We're uh, overwhelmed by the support. It's been really great. The Patreon's been doing especially well lately, and we just are very pleased that people like what we're putting out. And we'll, of course, do our best to make it even better going forward. Absolutely. So our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So before we kicked off and got into the podcast itself, we just want to let you guys know that we will be taking a two-week break uh, coming up here before we get into Catelyn's eighth chapter. You remember Catelyn, who, by the way, has done only one thing wrong in her entire life? Yeah, she's in this book, too. So we'll be getting back to her, but unfortunately, it will only come out on March 25th. And the reason why is that I have a work trip I have to undertake here in the next few weeks. So I'll be out of town and unable to really record next, well, when we normally record. But we will be back at the end of the month for Catlin 8. And then our next Patreon-only episode will be out, which is all about our predictions for Game of Thrones Season 8. You know, today, as we're recording this on Monday, the 4th of March, the Enter Entertainment Weekly magazine came out with a bunch of new photos in this grand article by James Hibbert about the major battle that's set to occur outside of... Uh, what? This is anything and everything, right? Outside of Winterfell in season eight. So uh, very interesting to see what's going to happen with season eight. We'll come at you with all our predictions and that'll be available at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F on March 28th for all $5 and above patrons. So st stick around for that. That's going to be great. And yes, of course, Jeff as a good American has a job. He must attend to. <laughs> I as a decadent, delicate dandelion make my income busking in the sewers of Paris. So... <laughs> I don't have, I don't face those issues. That's is not true. You are a good American too, because you are employed. That's, that's very sweet. He says <laughs> with a raised eyebrow. I'm waving a little teeny tiny pencil, like American flag. Of course you're like, I'm sure you just have like a whole warehouse full of those, a whole garage stocked high. I, I do. Made in China though. The irony. Anywho, our question this week comes from Sir Jacob R.W., who asks, What's your guy's opinion of Jorah Mormont, and where do you see his path leading to in future books? Personally, I see him as a nice guy, in quotation marks, of course, who learned almost nothing from his exile. Honestly, he's not even the slightest bit of remorse for his crimes. It's as if him becoming a slave himself hasn't even woken him up. I also find it hard to believe Danny will ever accept him back. I also get the feeling he will live through the Battle of Fire, though. Obviously, I'm clueless as to where he will go. What are your thoughts? Also, thank you for the amazing podcast. It is always something to look forward to while I deliver pizza. Keep up the excellent work. <laughs> that is the finest use to which we can be put, so thank you, Sir Jacob, and thank you for the question. Well, Jeff, I can't really feign interest in Jorah Mormont, so I'm going to kick this over to you first. What do you think happens to old Slave Bear? Do, you, do I have to, like, pretend like I'm interested in Jorah Mormont, too? Is that what has to go on here? Standard Ian Glenn is kind of cute disclaimer, but beyond that... Uh, yeah, he, 
is it Ian or is it Ian? I've I've never like known whether like what's the difference because it's he spells it I A I N like the Northern Irish way, right? Is it Ian or Ian? I mean that's we'll we'll pass it over to our listeners. Let I us can, know. I confess ignorance. I confess ignorance as well. So Jorah Mormont, my opinion of him is that he sucks and he's the worst, and I wish that a dragon would eat him, but it's not going to happen because I think. Sir Jacob R.W. is correct in that I think he's going to survive the Battle of Fire. And the only reason I think he's going to survive the Battle of Fire, well, there's two reasons. The the one kind of plot-driven reason why he's going to survive the Battle of Fire is that the second, not the second sons, yeah, they are the second sons, is that the second sons that are holding him, Tyrion, and Penny at the Battle of Fire are probably going to want to keep him around as potential leverage in the case that Daenerys might want to, like, kill the shit out of Brown Ben Plum, who has, of course, just betrayed her a few chapters before that in Marine. So maybe they'll be like, well, don't kill Brown Ben Plum or Jorah Mormont gets it sort of thing. I mean, they're going to use any leverage they really can in order to get out of like getting a uh, dragon the shit out of. Um, the more thematic reason why I think that Jorah Mormont survives the Battle of Fire is that we have that monologue from his father, Sir, uh, Lord Gior Mormont, Elsie Mormont, as he's also as he's known around these parts, in which he tells Samuel Tarly that he wants his son to take the black after him in order to atone for his crimes that he's committed. And man, Jorah has committed so many fucking crimes. I mean, I feel I I, I feel like. I'm on, I'm of two minds, right? So on one hand, like, I think there's been an excellent course correction, kind of the fandom, at least the kind of the fandom, fandoms that I'm exposed to about Jorah Mormont, in which like I came to him like in 2012, when I first started getting interested in the show and the books and people are like, oh, this guy's amazing. He's great. He's this great warrior. Without really taking into account like his background as a slaver, his background selling poachers in order to finance his wife's spending habits and his also background as a freaking traitor to Daenerys Targaryen. Like, these are things that probably should have been taken into better account of, but because he was played by Ian Glenn, or Ian Glenn, whatever his name is actually, that he was uh, seen as kind of a good guy who kind of was a little bit rough around the edges, so to speak. Now I think I've seen there's a course correction that's been good about him in the fandom, at least the corners I've been exposed to, but I still see once in a while someone saying that Jorah Mamont's okay, he's a fine guy, he's a good character. I really couldn't give two shits about Jorah Mamont, whether he survives, dies, lives. I mean, I, I kind of want him to get reacquainted with Daenerys just so he can, Danny can be like, fuck you, like you betrayed me, you sold slaves, like then I'm doing my own thing right now sort of thing. Oh, and there's John. Hi, John. You know, that sort of thing. That's kind of, that's kind of what I would like to see for Jorah Mamont. But I guess we'll have to see. I mean, he's still freaking alive in season eight. He's still a major character in the, in the show. I'm not 100% sure he's going to be a major character in the books after the Battle of Fire. I'm not sure. I think he'll probably drop down to much more minor, but I guess we'll have to see uh, as the as the books progress and we get the Winds of Winter next week or the week after. One of the two. What do you think, Edmund? I mean, Jorah is my least favorite significant character in A Song of Ice and Fire, pretty yes. much exactly because of what Sir Jacob said, because there's no self-reflection. There's no struggle. There's no conflict. There's no change. That's really what's damning for him as a character, I think, more than mm-hmm. his horrible actions. His horrible actions are kind of what mark him out as a person. Right. But, you know, plenty of characters that I find more engaging than Jorah and I sympathize more with Jorah have done horrible things. I mean, we could do a whole episode just purely listing the horrible actions taken by Stannis Baratheon. Sure. And yet we are still here, you know, praising him endlessly. <laughs> the problem with Jorah is that he lacks the kind of inner torment and arc you see with a character like Stannis or with Jaime. Right. It's just it's just not there. And even that kind of character, I think you can make work, but you got to do it like Victorian. You got to make that the point. You right. got to get into the head of this like completely just clueless, bumbling man who doesn't understand that he's making himself unhappy with all his violence. Yes. I think Victorian works in that way because the, the tone is great, but George just never gets that engagement. And as Sir Jacob said, I don't know, I feel like it was a missed opportunity in Dance to not have Jorah becoming a slave himself change mm-hmm. anything about right. him. And I, you know, I say that knowing that we might well get something like that in wins. It could well come up in conversation and dialogue. But from what we saw in the series so far, there's just... Yeah, I don't, re- I don't really get what the hook is supposed to be. I don't get why we're supposed to value a future relationship with him and Danny. I think he's probably going to end up at the wall because of what his dad said. But for me, that's just the most, like, you know, pull and plug, puzzle piece right. outcome. Just like it's going to happen because it said it was going to happen. I don't have really any particular emotional... I'm being very negative right now. I, know that. <laughs> I can say nice things. It's a rough I day li- at work. I, I like... Th- 
I like the scene where Danny tells him to hit the road and storm. That's good, yeah. That's fun. And there's there's some good Jorah Mormont moments, but yeah, I feel like so far he's kind of a missed opportunity, and I feel like he's going to get lost in the shuffle of all the characters Danny has to interact with over the next couple books. Yeah. I feel like he's going to end up at the wall in the background, and it won't be particularly satisfying. No, I, I agree with that. I think that there's maybe there's a bit, I don't know. I, I'm trying to figure like some way that he could become compelling in the winds of winter. And I'm just coming up blank. I mean, like becoming a second son of Selsor, he's already done that. Becoming a slave, he's already done that. Having Danny tell him to fuck off, that's already happened as well. Like these are multiple different things. Are we just going to have a repeated motif for him going on and on and on? I don't know. I I mean, I, I really hope that George is really giving Jorah Mormont much thought as he writes The Winds of Winter, but God knows what's on his mind as in this in these dark days in 2019 as The Winds of Winter is still next week and still the week after that away. But yeah, I, I agree. I, I mean, I'm just, I just kind of blank out. I think you're absolutely right, though, about Victarian, that he could be like an interesting Victarian character or like an interesting character if he had gone through an interesting character transformation and becoming a slave, but he was only a slave for all of, what, a chapter and a half, right? In A Dance with Dragons before Tyrion leads them over to the set, to the uh, tent of the Second Sons. Like these, there's not enough time for an arc really there. And I know like he's technically a minor character, but George does a generally a good job of giving him, giving minor characters some something resembling an arc. I mean, I honestly think you, you're talking about like he was more interesting than, than Jorah Mormont. I honestly think that his stars O'Lorik is a much more interesting character than, than Jorah Mormont. Like he shows like actual character growth and like, he's kind of like an idiot, but like, he's not like a total idiot. And he's like trying to like change and adapt to this kind of new Marine. And it's kind of interesting. And there's issues with his stars O'Lorik as well. And kind of the betrayal of Orientalism in, in Danny's Marine arc. At the same time, I think he's a much more fascinating character than Jorah Mormont will ever be. And, and unfortunately he He's going to die in like the first chapter or two of the Winds of Winter. So, Hisers Oloric, greater than sign, Jorah Mormont, question mark. We'll ask the fans. A bold statement, but I, I think it'll pay off for you. <laughs> no, agreed. And, you know, the thing about Jorah being a minor character, he's actually pretty prominent, especially yeah. among non-point of view characters. In, in Clash and Storm and towards the end of this book, he is the most prominent supporting character in Danny's storyline. That's true. Which yeah. is kind of part of the problem, is that yeah. you, if you compare that to John's storyline and all the rich supporting characters he gets... All the way through the series, or like Arya with the Sandor and the Brotherhood and all the cool people she meets, it's just kind of lacking there, which is kind of a repeated problem in Danny's storyline. But to transition us towards our chapter for today, where Jorah does kind of work, especially early on as this kind of cultural ambassador and uh, advisor to Danny, often with his own kind of agenda, which is <laughs> kind of silly and not particularly dramatic, but. He does work in terms of like kind of like telling you like, oh, Danny, that's against the culture here or that's right. not going to work. He does work in that way that isn't particularly depthful, but it is functional. So if, yeah. if I may give Jorah Mormon any credit at all, it is for that. He is he is a useful RPG character right. for Daenerys, Daenerys, Daenerys Targaryen's arc. Yes, he is an excellent NPC to give Daenerys Targaryen the information that she needs to progress on to her next objective. As is Quaithe. It's kind of a thing in Danny's story. And a lot of these characters do feel like, welcome to the village. Here right. is your mission. Welcome to Astapor. Right, right. Mm-hmm. This is an excellent comparison. Maybe we'll have to do some sort of podcast someday down the road about why John's side characters rule and Danny's mostly suck until we get to a Storm of Swords. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves here because Storm Swords won't be coming until like 2021, 2022 or so. So anyways, as Emmett was alluding to, this is a Daenerys Targaryen chapter. This is her sixth chapter. I know I had forgotten too that Daenerys Targaryen is in a Game of Thrones, but she is. I, shocking. I know she is one of the, the highest chapter counts in all the, the POV characters, but because we've been so fixated on King's Landing and then Winterfell, it you kind of gets, she kind of gets lost in the shuffle, but she's here too. And man, she's going to, her arc begins picking up right at this chapter. Yeah. I was going to say, she's some of the most chapters in the book because of what happens from here on out. Exactly. The pace really starts picking up and that fits the content within. Yeah. We're about to get to some extremely dark and extremely weird stuff in Daenerys's storyline. And not a lot of that is in this chapter, but the seeds for it are here. Oh, seeds. That's an excellent transition. So oh, what here have I done? Is I swear that wasn't synopsis. intentional. Please don't think ill of me. I, I am not trash. For a Game of Thrones, Daenerys 6. So, as Emmett was talking about, what better way to start a Daenerys Targaryen chapter with Caldro with Khal Drogo having just nutted? Am I right, Emmett? Right? I hate you. <laughs> I want this on record. 
Join the crowd, bro. So Danny and Drogo have just finished doing the nasty, and Drogo rises from his sleeping mats, looking like a man with muscles and scars and hair falling down his ass and all the way down to the floor, I believe, and of course, a moist dick. But oddly, he's not super happy. And why wouldn't he be happy? He just got laid, right? The stallion who mounts the world has no need of iron chairs. Uh, it seems Danny has brought the subject up again. You know the one, right? The let's cross the narrow sea and invade Westeros subject? That one. Danny brings up the point that the stallion who mounts the world is supposed to ride to the ends of the earth, but Drogo counterpoints that with the idea that the world ends at the narrow sea. But wait, Drogo, maybe we can get a bunch of ships and sail to Westeros. But no, this conversation is over. Drogo's off to go hunting, and he's hunting the most dangerous game, the Lazarine. Oh, shit, fuck, that's the next chapter. He's off to hunt the great white lion, the Rakhar of the plains. Drogo wasn't scared of lions or any animals, but salt water was something else. It was, quote-unquote, poison water in Dothraki parlance. And while Drogo was made a braver stock than the average Dothraki call, he shared the Dothraki cultural superstition against salt water. With Drogo gone, Danny asks for her handmaids to come wash her. They do so, and then she summons Jorah Mormont. Jorah, because he's not at all a lovesick puppy for Daenerys, who again is 13 while Jorah's like in his 40s. Remember this, guys. Remember, this is a recurring theme that we need to think about whenever we hear about Jorah kind of getting frisky with Daenerys and thinking about Daenerys. Anyways, he's there in a heartbeat. Danny tells Jorah he needs to communicate to Drogon that they need to go west to Westeros, not east to the lands around the Jade Sea. Ah, well, you see, Danny, Drogo doesn't really conceive of Westeros. The Kull has never seen the Seven Kingdoms. They are nothing to him. If he thinks of them at all, no doubt he thinks of islands, a few small cities clinging to rocks in the manner of Lorath or Lys, surrounded by stormy seas. The riches of the east must seem a more tempting prospect. Yeah, that's, that's great in all, Jorah, but he has to go west. Yeah, someday they'll go home, Jorah promises. But don't fuck up the way that Viserys did Daenerys. And on the topic of quote-unquote home for Daenerys, what exactly was her home? She'd never seen Westeros. She only knew her quote home from the stories that Viserys had told her. And her memories of her other home, the one she actually remembered, the house with the red door, again in Bravos, were fading too. But Vase Dothrak doesn't feel like home to her either. When she looked at the crones of the Dash Kaleen, was she looking at her future? Question mark. Well, Jorah seems to sense that Danny is sad, so to cheer her up, he tells her that a great caravan has arrived in Vase Dothrak, and they should all go off to visit the entirely assassin-free caravan to see if Illyrio sent some correspondence their way. Well, Danny's all about that now. You could never tell what treasure the traders might bring this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Danny has Eerie prepare a litter and they're off to the market. And it's a pleasant trip with Danny, her protectors, and her handmaids all riding over there. And the sun is out on a cloudless day and the smells of earth and grass are about. It's just about the best goddamn assassin-free day you can imagine in Vase Dothrak. But of course, they do pass by the stolen gods and idols the Dothraki had stolen and brought back to Vase Dothrak. And Danny wonders if the gods of burned cities could still answer prayers. I'd like to know the question that answered that question too. But besides that, Danny is still thinking about her conception of home. She might come to love this place that is Vase Dothrak, but she was the blood of the dragon, a Khaleesi with a strong husband, swift horses, warriors to protect her. She could see herself as part of the Dash Kalim, if only she wasn't a dragon. With Viserys gone, Daenerys was the last, the very last. She was the seat of kings and conquerors, and so too the child inside her. She must not forget. But now at the Western Market, Daenerys is engulfed by the sights, warrens of mud-baked brick, animal pens, whitewashed drinking halls, and inside the square itself, stalls and aisles, awnings of woven grass with hundreds, with a hundred merchants and traders plying their wares. Of interest, though, this place wasn't like the merchant stalls Danny remembered from the free cities that she grew up in. Here, the caravans came to Vase Dothrak not to sell to the Dothraki, but rather to trade with other merchants. And so long as everyone observed Dothraki laws and customs, no one would meet the business end of the Dothraki version of justice. But to add a bit more world-building to it all, Danny liked the Eastern Market too. It was there that she ate tree eggs, locust pie, and green noodles. She also listened to spell singers, watched manacores, elephants, and zorses in cages. And then there were all the people, the Ashai, the Carthine, the bright-eyed men of E.T. and monkey-tail hats, warrior maids from the cities in the east, and even shadow men who covered their arms and legs and chests with tattoos and hid behind masks. All of that was great and wondrous, but the Western Market smelled like home. Which home, though? We'll address that. Eerie and Jigby help Danny down from her litter, and she pokes about taking in all the sights and smells of the Western Market. Meanwhile, caravan guards mill about, ensuring that the market remains assassination-free. 
As a girl, though, Daenerys loved to play in the bazaar. She felt alive when she did so, and she loved looking at all the beautiful items, but she rarely had the money to afford anything. That is, save for an occasional sausage now and then. But hey, maybe we can get some honey fingers, some cakes, right, Jorah? Uh, yeah, maybe later. If you would pardon me for a time, I will seek out the captain and see if he has letters for us. Oh, well then, Danny will accompany Jorah. Uh, no, Jorah says. As a result of being above suspicion, Jorah will need to go alone. Curious, Danny, Emmett, and I saw all say at the same time. Danny thinks that maybe he's off to seek out a sex worker. Some men were a little reticent to explain themselves in that type of rationale, especially to another woman. So Danny shrugs Jorah off and goes exploring. And lo and behold, she comes across the sausages. Hell yeah, sausages. Who doesn't love sausages, man? She tries one and she enjoys it, but it tastes kind of different. Uh, yeah, as to that, why they taste different, well, these sausages were made from horse meat. Danny is a little disappointed, but her entourage starts wolfing down sausages left and right, and then when Ricaro eats three, he belches, and then Danny laughs, and Eri says that it's good to hear her laugh. She hasn't laughed since Viserys got his ass crowned. Makes sense. They stroll about the market for half the morning, buying a feathered Summer Island cloak. Looking on as a bird seller shows Danny a bird who can say her name. She buys scented oils that remind her of the House of the Red Door. When Danny notices Doria looking at a fertility charm, she buys it for her and thinks maybe she should get something for Eerie and Jiqui. It's a wonderful, assassination-free day. And how better to top off such a day than enjoy a cup of poison-free wine? Right, Emmett? Absolutely. My favorite kind of wine is the poison-free kind. That's my favorite, too. That's the only it's, kind I drink. It's it's poison-free and then red and then white. The three <laughs> kinds. The three kinds of wine, as it were. Well, wouldn't you know it, but such an opportunity presents itself as Danny and company round the corner and see a wine merchant calling out that he's got all sorts of wondrous wines for sale. He calls out his wares and Danny stops at his stall. The wine seller asks if Danny would like a taste, maybe a Dornish red. It was so good, he promises, that Danny might even name her firstborn after him. Uh, well, yes, he has a name. His is the song of, wait, god damn it, I'm in the wrong fucking Danny chapter again, Emmett. I, I, I don't know why I'm doing this in this chapter. You, you've come unstuck in time, buddy. You're in the house of the undying. You just need to sit still and maintain. Yeah, we're all the way in like late 2020 right now. I'm just flashing forward in my, my own timeline. <clears throat> Anyways. Well, Danny would take a taste, she responds in Valyrian. Danny sees the wine cellar taking notice of her, her speech, and her accent, and he asks if she's Tyroshi. No, not Tyroshi. She's Westerosi. Doria steps in to announce to announce Danny as well. Danny. The wine cellar bends the knee to Danny. Danny tells him to rise, and the wine cellar says that he has a super wine in the back that she definitely needs to drink a lot of. It's an arbor red, of course, and he'll give her the whole cast. Just, you know, go just, you know, go drink it at back of your tent while the wine cellar doesn't try to run like hell away. Well, Danny is honored by this quote unquote gift. But the honor is all the wine cellars. Yes, it is. Danny will take the wine cask back and share it with Khal Drogo and... No. Who said that? It's Jorah. And he's fucking pissed. He tells Ago to put the cask down. I say cask, but it should be cask. Cask. It's a hard word to say, guys. Cask. <sighs> Danny asks if something is wrong, and Jorah responds that he's thirsty and wants a drink now. The wine cellar tries to dodge, saying that the wine isn't meant for some idiot like Jorah. But Jorah moves closer to the wine cellar and tells him if he doesn't open the goddamn thing, he's going to crack it over his head. And at that, the wine cellar finally relents, takes up his hammer, and knocks the plug from the cask. That did. I did it right that time. Jorah orders him to pour as Danny's cause close in from around him. It would be a crime to drink this rich of wine without letting it breathe. Nah, you better fucking pour, Danny tells the wine cellar. So the wine cellar pours two small thimbles and hands one to Jorah. Sweet, isn't it? Can you smell the fruit, sir? The perfume of the arbor? Taste it, my lord, and tell me it isn't the finest, richest wine that has ever touched your tongue. Interesting phrasing. We should really talk about that, Emmett. That might be worth talking about a little bit. No you, Jorah says, but the wine cellar dodges yet again, saying it's a poor wine merchant who drinks his own wine. And then Danny tells him to drink up or he'll be force-fed. So the wine cellar shrugs, reaches for his cup, 
and then grabs the cask instead and throws it at Danny with both hands. Jora bulls Danny out of the way. She stumbles and starts to fall, but Doria catches her by the arm and wrenches her backwards, so she falls on her legs, not her pregnant belly. Good job, Doria. The wine cellar tries running away, but then Jogo takes out his whip and snaps it after the would-be assassin. The whip catches and then coils around his leg. The wine cellar then immediately eats shit, and it's great. A dozen caravan guards then come running up to the scene. The captain orders the wine cellar taken to await Kal Drogo's pleasure, and then he gets gifts the rest of the wine cellar's wares to Danny as a form of apology. Danny is helped up by Dory and Jiqui, and she turns to Jorah. How did you know? How? I did not know Khaleesi. Not until the man refused to drink. But once I read Magister Lear's letter, I feared the worst. Did you, Jorah? Did you? Yeah. Jorah tells Danny that they should really talk about this in a private setting, so they carry Danny back to her tent in Vazdothrak. And as she's carried, she thinks that she knows something that she didn't know for a long time. Fear. And she thought she had been free from it after Viserys. And she wasn't just scared for herself. She had her baby to consider. So then she starts whispering to him, You are the blood of the dragon, and the dragon does not fear. At last, they reach the tent, and Danny orders everyone but Jorah to leave. When everyone is gone, Danny tells Jorah to tell her what's happened. And Jorah proceeds to reveal that there's a letter from Illyrio to Viserys warning him that Robert Baratheon has sent out an offer. Robert Baratheon offers lands and lordships for your death. Or your brothers. Danny chokes back half a sob, half a cry. Then Robert owes Khal Drogo a lordship, Danny says, as she hugs herself and asks whether the warrant was only for her. You and the child, Jorah says. Danny decides not to weep and thinks that now the usurper has woken the dragon for real. And then her eyes go to her dragonades as the light and heat play across their scales. And suddenly, suddenly, she's caught up in an emotion born of madness or wisdom. Sir Jorah, like the brazier. Jorah looks at Danny like she's crazy, but he does as he's commanded. When the coals were burning, Danny finally kicked Jorah out of the room, grabbed the dragon eggs with both hands, and placed them into the fire. Against the echoes in her own mind of how this madness will only crack the eggs open and make them burn, she pushes them into the coals farther and farther. The scales turn bright as they drink in the heat. Flames lick across the stone. Danny steps back, her breath in her throat. She watches as the coals burn and then cool, and then the coals are ashes. And then, and then, nothing. Nothing happens. Your brother Rhaegar was the last dragon, Sir Jorah had told her. What had she expected? A thousand, thousand years ago, they had been alive, but now they were only pretty rocks. They could not make a dragon. A dragon was air and fire, living flesh, not dead stone. By the time Drogo returns, the brazier was cold, and Khal Drogo is in a great mood, having just killed a great white lion and announcing his plans to make a pelt of it for Danny. That is, he was in a good mood until Danny told him about what happened at the market. Then Khal Drogo grew quiet. Jorah puts in that this poison was only the first, but he won't be the last. And when Drogo hears that, he says that the wine cellar slash poisoner should have run after Daenerys instead of run away from her. He offers any horse that Jorah or Jogo would want, save for his own and Danny's horse. And then he thunders a promise to his unborn son, Rago, that of course, I gotta, I, I just gotta, man. I've got to read this in full because it's kind of one of those epic moments from a Game of Thrones that's worth reading in full, even as, even as it's completely fucking horrifying because this is just a terrible, terrible, awful thing. Permission granted, sir. Ah, I appreciate that. I always, I live for your permission, your approval. That's how I spend my days wanting and desiring both of those things. Jeff, this is a family podcast. <laughs> oh, I should be laughing for what I'm about to read. <clears throat> and to Rago, son of Drogo, the stallion who will mount the world, to him I also pledge a gift. To him I will give this iron chair, his mother's father's satin. I will give him seven kingdoms. I, Drogo Kal, will do this thing. His voice rose and he lifted his fist to the sky. I will take my Kalasar west to where the world ends and ride the wooden horses across the black salt water as no Kal has done before. I will kill the men in their iron suits and tear down their stone houses. I will rape their women, take their children as slaves, and bring the broken gods back to Vaisdothrak to bow before the mother of dragons. This I vow. I, Drogo, son of Barbaro. This I swear before the mother of mountains as the stars look down and witness. Oof. Oof. Well done, Schwarzenegger. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was kind of a little bit of uh, Jason Momoa, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and a little bit of, I have to be honest, too, a little bit of the Barrettes as well. Oh, that's a nice tribute. Yes. R.I.P. Rip. Roy. Love you, man. 
Drogo's Kalasar rode from Bastothrak two days later, heading south and west, chained at the throat and wrists and then tied to the back of Danny's horse. The wine cellar struggles along, running after her. No harm would come to him, so long as he kept up. And that is a Game of Thrones, Daenerys 6. And we are finally leaving Vaisdothrak until the winds of winter. And this is the start of those chapters where Danny's kind of arc super picks up in intensity with her interchanging action, horror, and pathos sequences. And as Emma likes to say, those kind of weirdness elements as well, all leading to the fire made flesh and the birth of the dragons. And just before I turn over to Emmett real quick, and I know I've been talking for a while, so I apologize if you fucking hate my voice. I also fucking hate my voice. For those who are interested in kind of the meta side of A Song of Ice and Fire, George published a novella of Danny's Game of Thrones chapters for Asimov Science Fiction Magazine in July 1996. So about a full month and a half before the publication of A Game of Thrones. Interesting as my friend Jen, aka Jen underscore Snover on Reddit, discovered when she found the original novella, a Game of Thrones Daenerys 6 was not included among the chapters that George published in the magazine. Now, given that the novella was published only, like I said, about a month to a month and a half prior to A Game of Thrones, I think it's fair to conclude that George had written this chapter, but I do wonder whether this was a late addition to A Game of Thrones, perhaps too late for the magazine. Perhaps George thought he hadn't sold the idea that Viserys' crying would bestir Drogo to ride for the Lazarine and Westeros and wanted to kind of have some payoff to that poison plot that had just kind of been emanating from Eddard 8 and was just kind of hanging out there. I don't know. That said, this chapter is kind of a little bit of an oddity for me, Emmett, because I like it. I do. I really do. And I'd like what it does for Danny's character. And I love the identity conflicts. I'll talk about a little bit later. But the plot purposes of getting the Dothraki moving kind of feels maybe a bit artificial. I don't know. What do you think, man? As you said, Danny's POV really takes over the third act of A Game of Thrones in a lot of ways. The pace ramps up dramatically as we go from sedate daily routine and vase Dothraki for most of this chapter to the assassination, warmongering, massacres, blood magic, death and decay and dragons. It's ridiculously exhilarating on the whole, definitely some of George's best work. But here in Danny 6, it's a little ruthless in its momentum yeah. toward the end. That said, there are plenty of great touches to admire and discuss here. I agree with that. You know, this chapter really reminds me of Brand's fifth chapter, the one that we didn't do last week, but the one we did back in November, I want to say. In that we have like a lot of those bittersweet pathos inherent, a glorious and beautiful day, and then it all goes to hell. And I think I references that brand five, but I'll reference it again. There's that old Murphy's Law of Combat, which has it that if your attack is going really, really well, it's probably an ambush. So in A Song of Ice and Fire, if your chapter starts really well, it's a beautiful, wonderful, sunny day, it's probably going to end like shit. It's probably going to end super, super badly. But like I said in my synopsis, I don't know, man, like the plot points here aren't my favorite in the books. Instead, like in terms of the things I like, I think I, I really enjoy the consistent through theme of Danny's dual conflicting Dothraki and Targaryen identities. And even better for me, I really enjoy like the, her attempt to disassociate, disassociate herself with her identities at Khaleesi because she's the blood of the dragon and how it's all tied up in her longing to go to Westeros, a home that she's never been to and never seen. And, and I love that line. I didn't read it in the synopsis, but it's the one about uh, it was a land that was like the... Uh, how's it? How's it Viserys say it? Or how's Daenerys? The, he's she's remembering it about Viserys as like the land that they would only whisper about, sort of things. Is it a few tales, names recited as solemnly as the words of a prayer? Yes. The fading memory of a red door. Yeah. Yeah. That's some that's some prime Daenerys character stuff right there. Uh, I agree. That identity struggle really is the central tension of this chapter, and it's resolved for now. Violently at its end by the assassination attempt and Drogo's reaction to it. From the very start of the chapter in her argument with Drogo, Danny is trying to root herself in a suddenly Viserys-less world. She's trying to decide who she is and where she belongs now as the last dragon, as in her mind the heir to House Targaryen. And she's pushing Drogo to invade in order to make her brother's story real, in part to give his life and death some meaning, so he's not just kind of this horrible, dangling, loose thread right. in her past, in her psyche. And similarly, Drogo refuses not out of logistical concerns. I'm sure he thinks he could take the Seven Kingdoms if he felt like it pretty yeah. easily. But for cultural reasons, he, he loathes the poison water, as you said, and he thinks of Westeros as a backwater, which, to be fair, compared to Essos, it really kind of is. Mm -hmm. Like, as, as Jorah points out, in terms of Drogo's material interests, he's much better served going the, the Yi-T direction right. than he is going to Westeros. So while Danny has assimilated far better than Viserys did, because he didn't even try... She's running up against some obstacles, and Jorah, who has been here longer, again, serves that structural purpose, as I said, of being there to point them out, that, hey, that's not quite how it works, Drogo's not going to listen to you that way. And he offers this escape in the form of Vase Dothrak's marketplace, which acts as a great externalization of this internal struggle on Danny's part. Just like her, there's the divide between the East and the West in the two markets. 
And while she, she loves the sights and the sounds and smells of the Eastern market, there's that great line, the Western market is home. Hmm. So she's, that she's trying to, she's trying to capture that, that what she's trying to find and is searching for, for her, the Western market represents that. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating point that you bring up there about how the Western market represents home. But what I think is like fascinating about that the Western market is home is that the reader, when he or she reads that, thinks that George is talking about Westeros, right? That it's all about Westeros. But then again, contrast that to what Danny is saying earlier, that Westeros is a place she's never been to. Yeah, she was born on Dragonstone. But she doesn't remember it. So she doesn't really know Westeros at all. She has no memories of it whatsoever. She has fading memories of Bravos. But what's interesting about that idea that I think is a fantastic idea, again, that you bring up, is about the sights and the smells of the Eastern Mark contrasting it to what the Western Mark, which is what she thinks of as home, is that, again, she hasn't been to Westeros. So what does the Western Mark smelling like home mean for Daenerys? Yeah, exactly. It's referring to the free cities. It's referring to those, you know, alleys and bazaars she ran through as a kid when her and Viserys were on the run. So it's, it gets at that complex idea of home for Danny as she admits to herself, Westeros is a product of dreams and stories and projections yeah. for her. When she concretely thinks of home, it's the house with the red door. It's it's the free cities. And she's trying to kind of merge them into her head, right. which makes Vase Dothrak the perfect setting for it because for Vase Dothrak, they are the same. It's right. just the West. The free cities and Westeros are in the same direction. So from this perspective, they are the same. So that gets at how complex these multiple identities are and, and how important they are to Danny's character arc that she tries to work through them. And I, I really love this scene because it's very, very human and very kind of cute. And this is, I think, where we see the Dothraki around Danny humanize the most, arguably, because yeah. you know, they're buying their little trinkets and they're trying to outdo each other and how much they eat and they're behaving just like kind of young people trying to act boastful and in charge around their important charge. And it, it, it's good stuff. And I like like the tone of it. As, uh, as you know, Danny is smiling for the first time since Viserys died. It's very nice, but beneath the big picture movements of plot and setting, you see that identity conflicts play out more personally. It's the, yeah. the pathos you were alluding to, where she's looking for home and fear she's going to lack it forever. And that's a theme that Martin comes back to again and again in her story when you get to Karth and when you get to Marine. I mean, obviously Viserys abused her and sold her and died threatening her, but he was also an anchor for her in terms of how right. she thought about her life and where she was going to go, and that's gone now. Yeah. So now she, as she says, she wants to hear Valyrian again rather than <laughs> think about joining the Dashkalene. That's very significant in terms of her yearning and who she wants to be. She's trying to restore that lost dream, but she can't. For me, the best example of this is is the metaphor of the sausages, or the metaphor, if oh, you will forgive me. Boo. I know, I know. Go directly to jail on that one. I couldn't resist. <laughs> but I love this little scene because she's like, oh, those sausages, I remember those. Those are connected to my youth and my childhood and everything I'm trying to recapture. But they don't taste the same because it's yeah. different because we're out here in the Dothraki seaweed horse meat out here. So that's that's it's so perfect because that's the process Danny is going through of trying to get used to this new culture and this new part of her life and looking back at something she's... She's never going to be able to find again. I mean, you know, it's that great Maester Lewin monologue in Clash of Kings about how even gods die. We think everything changes, you yeah. know, everything rises and falls. And we see the gods and the heroes along the, the route of Vase to Throck. And Danny thinks about how do burned cities still have gods? There's that sense of transience mm -hmm. and having lost things and living with their ghosts, which we see across the story, but really heavily in Danny's chapters. And that's why those dead kids keep popping up all over her story, because in a the, in the sense, they are her. They are her innocence yes. and youth that she's lost and can't get back. And there's that really poignant moment when she's thinking to herself, God, I really could be happy here mm -hmm. if I wasn't the blood of the dragon. I have a husband. I have a child along the way. I, I have security. I have the food in my belly and sunlight on my face. You know, all, all, this, all the stuff of a good life, all the stuff that really makes you happy, not trying to be the hero or climb some mm -hmm. tall tower for power or vengeance. It really frames the blood of the dragon as this kind of curse, this burden that is forcing Danny out of something that really could make her happen. Oh, it's a fantastic point, man, as, as, as all your points are, but that's especially fantastic. I was thinking about how sometimes in my own life, I, I have moments where I'm pretty content. I've, I have a pretty stable job. I've got a great family. I've got a great wife and two wonderful kids. Uh, who destroyed my house today, which is fine. Um, as I was what does it exist for, Jeff, if not to be destroyed by them? Exactly, to be destroyed by them and to have me supervising the destruction. That's that's how I like to look at, at my role in their lives. True happiness. I, I've got like all these things, but at the same time, there's still that sort of yearning. Like, 
I could be a, a published author someday. I could be X, Y, and Z. I could be the greatest podcaster in human history. You know, these types of things. I'm kidding about the last part. But these these types of things are, are things that are always on my mind, too. And I, I think, like, what we're seeing there, like, in the overall, like, you take the 10,000-foot view that George is probably looking at it. Like, he's trying to make a realistic arc for Daenerys to want to go back to Westeros to be the hero as she's likely going to be in the end times in A Dream of Spring when she's confronting the threat of the others. Like, it would be easy for George to kind of like kind of do the shortcut way of being like, OK, and now Daenerys is heading west because that was her home sort of thing. But instead, like he interrogates that motif in Danny's arc. He really, really interrogates it. I think it's interesting, too, how he interrogates it in terms of Viserys, because he's only mentioned, I think, two or three times in this chapter. But there's that that sadness that Danny feels. It's a bit subtler because as we in the last chapter we have the man who was her brother sort of motif that just keeps getting repeated as she's watching Viserys like slowly slowly get himself killed but at the same time Danny doesn't really think about that moment necessarily so much there it's brought up by Eerie at one point in the chapter itself but I think it like it's subtly there like that sadness those lines about Westeros and the prayers about Westeros and that sort of stuff. It works really, really well to kind of show us kind of the natural progression where Danny's at. I, we can't really say for sure when this chapter takes place kind of timeline wise after Viserys is crowning this crown of gold chapter. But you can imagine maybe a month, two months or so. I mean, Danny's chapters are kind of long, long far out in terms of some of the timeline events occur like months at a time between each other. But and then at the end of her, her arc in a Game of Thrones, they're occurring like a day apart from each other, sort of thing. So it's interesting how George like plays the timeline a little bit there. So we do get kind of a natural progression of Danny's feelings about Viserys, Danny's feelings about her identity, and I think it's great. I think it's great that he's consistently asking Danny to question herself, question who she is, and ultimately setting her up to be an an, an endgame hero in A Song of Ice and Fire. I think you're completely right that Viserys is a presence in this chapter. He's haunting it, as Jor will say in Clash of Kings to Danny. You take your ghost with you wherever you go, and Danny is now taking Viserys with her wherever she goes. I mean, he shows up as late in the series as Danny's last published chapter in A Dance with Dragons. Mm-hmm. Viserys is one of the ghosts she sees on the Dothraki Sea. He's always yeah. going to be there. And I think she's realizing that and trying to shape her future around giving that some meaning, as I was saying earlier. And it's a direct contrast with something like Young Griff, which we were talking about on our most recent yeah. Patreon episode with Grant, about how Young Griff is in part Martin satirically framing the the easy shortcuts that a character like John and Danny could make mm-hmm. and saying pointing that and saying, see, this is kind of a lie and kind of right. cheat. So I think, yeah, you can see him building that kind of thematic framework here. And the dream Danny is talking about is, of course, it's it's made relatable and sympathetic because it's not just about I want to conquer Westeros. It's I want to give my family some some meaning and you know resolve this backstory that's kind of this ache that destroyed my brother. But at the same time, we see it reflected in other characters like Quentin, where that that dream of climbing high and accomplishing something and giving loss some meaning can lead you to some terrible ends and right. some terrible means, mm-hmm. and that and that the, there's something nobler about accepting a humble life yes and and scaling back your ambitions not because it's it's bad to have them but because you want to try to limit your harm done and i think i think that's a theme with implications for the genre i think at some level martin is saying you know all those fantasy characters who hate their humble environments and want to go off and wave a sword and and, you know save the day and then they do maybe a lot of them should have just stayed home yep maybe that's actually a better life and you know we have the opening words of the series we should start back Mm -hmm. so i think i think that's definitely a present theme in this chapter. It's interesting, though. I think at the same time, like you could see Daenerys is kind of in a Quentin Martell type situation here where she is essentially powerless, save for the people that are thrusting her into a position of power, namely the Dothraki. In Quentin, he's basically gotten to Marine because he's had his best friend killed on the journey. He's had Kendry or Kedry, rather, the maester who also died on the journey as well. They all keep him alive all the way to Marine, but when he gets to Marine, he's essentially powerless. He's got Arch and Drink, his two friends, and that's it. He doesn't bring anything to the table, so when he decides he's going to become the hero at that juncture of the story, that the hero always makes it to the end, he's got nothing really going for him. And Daenerys doesn't, I mean, she's got the Dothraki going for her right now, but she doesn't have the dragons yet, so this is kind of Quentin-like in terms of his, her longing for, her longing to be the person to kind of, quote-unquote, right the wrongs done to her family and to her father and her, her uncle uncle, brother, and to her brother Rhaegar as well. So yeah, I think that's really, really good. 
But of course, what sets everything into motion, though, for the Dothraki actually moving is the plot purposes. We've talked enough about the good stuff of this chapter. It's time to get into that assassination plot. Enough of the maudlin character drama and internal struggles right. and the human heart and conflict with itself. On to the exciting set piece. But yeah, I mean, the assassination attempt, what I like about it is it furthers the cultural things rather yeah. than just abandoning them as window dressing. Like the merchant takes her for a Dothraki at first and then the Tyroshi before learning she was born in Westeros. That's her life story told backwards. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the backstory of seeing unfold in the market. You know, she's she was born in Westeros and then she came to the Free Cities, she came to the Dothraki Sea and now those identities are kind of being seen in reverse like a like a nested onion or like a Russian nesting doll. Hmm. And uh, she's pleased to accept the wine specifically because Drogo developed a taste for the wine in the Free Cities. <laughs> Again, that kind of intermixing culture that, that Danny is involved in. That yes. She sees that wine as, oh, this is a cultural signifier that Drogo will appreciate. Not just something he'll get drunk on of a night. This is something he'll have taste for. Right. Which is, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting little note. I mean, all of this is to say that when the wine seller tries to kill her, it's not just one man trying to attack her. It's as if home itself has lashed out at her. Hmm. This is a man who is talking to her about Westerosi products and speaking to her as a queen and speaking in that language. In the Western market, the place that smelled like home, death was waiting for here too. And this is the thing she was trying to get away from after Viserys died. You know, the, the smile, as, as, as she says, you know, the first smile since Viserys died. And now it's been taken away from her again. So there's that real kind of sense of emotional loss and yeah that leads her to contemplate waking the dragons rather than drowning in tears that's what she says to herself i'm not going to cry i'm not going to just retreat myself and that's when she goes to the dragon eggs and there's that great imagery of them shimmering in the fire and mm-hmm. it's that kind of sorrow rage dichotomy we see with a lot of characters in the song of ice and fire especially uh female characters mm-hmm. that have to have this choice they feel they have to make between losing themselves in tears and kind of you know turning it into armor turning it into anger and uh, instead of waking the dragon, of course, as our title says, she wakes the Drogo, and boy, does she ever. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, she does. And I think it's really interesting, too. Again, we talk, we're talking about the subtle ways that Viserys is in this chapter. Her usage of waking the dragon is something that Viserys said all the time to her, many multiple times in the first five chapters, in her first five POV chapters in A Game of Thrones. So her returning to that is returning to a conception of Targaryen identity that is more Aegon the Conqueror than, say, Jaehaerys the Conciliator, if you want to go for that sort of dichotomy in terms of the peaceful good ruler and the warlike good ruler there. So Danny is turning towards the warlike side of her, which again is another part of her identity, whether she is the peaceful conciliator making peace with people that she hates in Marine and in Yunkai, as we've seen in Dance of Dragons, or the person that wants to visit fire and blood on all of her enemies, as we also see in A Storm of Swords as she makes her way north through Slaver's Bay. But yes, we are getting to the point now in the story where the plot is finally taking off for Daenerys Targaryen. I think we've seen a bit of a training arc for her in her first five chapters in that she is in sort of in somewhat similar ways that Jon Snow has had in his first few chapters before the dead men attack him or before the dead men attack Jior Mormont or Elsie Mormont as we like to say here. But we are finally seeing her emerging from the training, her cultural integration with the Dothraki, her ability to navigate kind of difficult uh, cultural pathways and on into the action phase of her arc, which is going to be very dominant as we progress forward to Lazar and on into the great Dothraki Sea and the and and the red wastes that are outside of uh, outside of Carthon into a Clash of Kings. Yeah, the great ramp up really does start at the end of the chapter. You can see it in the assassination scene. I love how Danny's tone gradually changes throughout the scene. She starts off just murmuring very softly and sweetly and politely when she thinks it's just a normal transaction. And then she's, you know, she starts saying, open it a little more firmly mm-hmm. as the wine, wine cellar starts to try to dodge. And then she, you know, finally threatens him openly as her voice is cold as ice saying, you know, drink it or we'll have, we'll pour it down your throat. Mm-hmm. So that's just a great way to, you know, measure the tension of the scene. And, uh, of course, you get the great payoff with Drogo's war speech. It's, oh, it's, it goes full full Conan, which mm-hmm. is clearly Martin's reference point from just, like, the phrasing and the tone of the speech. But in context, of course, this demonstrates just how self-sabotaging Robert's oh, assassination gosh, yeah. attempt really was. Because the invasion wasn't happening. Right. That's the whole point of the beginning of this chapter. Now, of course, in reality, Varys and Illyria would have probably contrived some other way right. to try and make this happen. But in the context of what Robert knows in his decision-making process... He's, he's just created this problem that didn't exist. He created an invasion that, from Drogo's decision-making perspective, wasn't going to happen. And there's, there's as we said, there's so little return of the rightful heir joy at this chapter's end. Right. Because what Drogo is describing is just a clusterfuck of war crimes. 
that would desolate Westeros. So as we read this the first time, you know, we go, oh no, Danny got what she wanted, but in the worst way possible. She'd be careful what you wish for. She got Jorga to go to Westeros, but it's because someone almost tried to kill her. And now he's threatening to kill everybody. I mean, again, thinking of the context of a Game of Thrones, as we said in Brand 6, we're starting to see the armies gear up. We're going to see Tywin's army in a couple chapters. We're going to be spending a bunch more time with Rob's army. And I think the Dothraki muster we see unfold over this chapter and Danny's next chapter is meant to be seen in context with those Westerosi armies because it's so just brutal and awful and not remotely glorious and gallant what we see unfold over the next couple of Danny chapters. So I think that's that's Martin trying to kind of strip the illusions away and show us really what it looks like for for Danny to take this leap and for Danny to push for Droga to invade Westeros on behalf of the Targaryen claim. And obviously we're going to be seeing a lot more of that when we get to Danny 7, which is just a very, very dark chapter. Oh my gosh. But, but, you, but as I said, you see the seeds sown for it here at the end of this chapter with Drogo's speech. Yes, you really do see that. I mean, it's, it's a cascading effect where Danny's love and thirst for going home and her home identity leads to this kind of terrible consequence where suddenly she's going to be arriving home, not as a liberator or not as a person who has come to bring justice to Westeros. But at this juncture in the story, she's bringing a Dothraki horde in with Drogo and the way that it's going to occur and and Drogo's uh, idealization of it is it's going to be a terrible, horrific set of war crimes. You're going to have massacres, rapes. You're going to have children sold to sold to slavery. You're going to have so many terrible, awful things occurring if Drogo gets his way. Now, of course, that's going to lead us to an interesting discussion when we come to Miriam's door uh, in the next Danny chapter and the one after that and the one after that and the one after that, of course. But whether she was right or right or wrong in, in what she did in, in potentially possibly killing uh, Drogo, which will be an interesting discussion we'll have to have when we get to her chapter. So it's very kind of ambiguous, even at this juncture of the story. It's a great point that the brutality we're going to see unfold and the just harsh language Drogo uses to describe it is meant to influence how we think about Miri Mazdor, who really just kind of takes over the book in, in these last few Danny chapters in a way I really, really enjoy. I've said before, I don't particularly like Danny's supporting cast, but Miri Mazdor might be my favorite supporting character that comes up in any of her chapters because I, I, I really like what she does and how she frames it. It's very interesting. But speaking of Miri Mazdor and all things supernatural, that takes us to our foreshadowing and groundwork section for the episode. So we see Danny have this supernatural connection with her eggs in this chapter, tied to her overall emotions about going home and a threat to House Targaryen, and she has this trippy imagery of the color surrounding the eggs like courtiers around a king, a very pointed metaphor. And when, of course, we've seen this connection before in Danny 3, and we'll see it again in Danny 9, right before they hatch in Danny 10. And I think that's all obvious, obviously, to a second-time reader that that's what Martin's doing, but what interests me about it is that Martin is working overtime to create this balance where he has to try and keep the dragon eggs in our mind so the eventual miracle is more, oh, fuck yes, than, wait, what? How did, you know, it's, he doesn't want it to come completely out of nowhere. So he has to distract us with political and personal affairs so as to not give the game away. Mm-hmm. Like, if the eggs were never brought up at all between the wedding where they were introduced and the pyre, it wouldn't feel earned. It would feel out of nowhere and kind of cheap. But if Danny had spent the book focused on the eggs and was, like, explicitly trying to wake them if, like, that was the substance of her plot... We wouldn't be surprised when she did. So Martin's going for that sweet spot. It's kind of it's kind of the same way with Jon Snow, in that like George distracts us consistently with Jon's arc, that his ultimate purpose is to fight against the others and against the Whites, and that he kind of throws all this kind of political uh, distraction there, where we have Jon having you know, learned about Ned's arrest and his potential execution and his actual execution later on his arc. And that is leads him astray from his idea that, yes, we actually have to fight dead men coming for us in the night. It's the same way with Danny too, where Danny's, uh, Danny's distracted from the eggs and from her, from actually waking them at the very end of her arc and the, the music of dragons that is the closing, one of the closing lines from a game of Thrones scenarios 10 by the fact that it doesn't work. Like she doesn't birth dragons in this chapter. She stares at the dragons and wonders if they're going to come alive at various points. But again, it's not one of those things where it's like constant, like that's the entire focus of her arc. And because we have multiple things that are going on, which allows George to do a great job of showing us that, you know, maybe they're not going to hatch. Maybe they're not. But of course they are going to hatch. Damn straight. One of those other things going on in this chapter is the Hrakar that Drogo <laughs> was hunting out and, and catches successfully for Danny. So that, uh, that does pay off in some interesting ways. Yeah, you know, it's kind of more minor than anything else, but we have 
Drogo promises that he's going to make a cloak for Daenerys from this Arakar, that the white line, so to speak. And we actually do see that come about in A Clash of Kings Daenerys 1, where her handmaids cloak her in the lion's skin after her hair burns away. And then she holds onto the cloak throughout A Clash of Kings, A Storm of Swords, and on into A Dance of Dragons, where it's last seen slipping away from her shoulders prior to her doing the nasty with Dario Naharis. There's a, um, you know, this is kind of a, a podcast, so it's hard to like kind of talk about how good this is, but there's a fantastic piece of artwork by Marco Vitosa that we'll link to in our show notes. So if you're one of our patrons there, you don't have to, any any level, you can take a look at it, in which uh, Danny is st- seen there with kind of those pale purple eyes and that uh, that lion cloak over top of her. It's really, really cool, especially contrasting against her, her kind of white gold hair and her kind of sad expression on her face. So I think it's really, really fun a lot. It's really, really fun. It's very ethereal. I love it a lot. I like the white lion as a connection back to Drogo. And I also like it as potential foreshadowing of a connection to Tyrion. Who knows how far ahead Martin was thinking about that relationship in book one. But of course, Tyrion, as with all Lannisters, is constantly connected to to lion symbolism. So maybe there's something there, especially if Tyrion ends up connecting to Viserion, the white dragon, in Hmm. some way. A lot of interesting stuff surrounding that. But also just, yeah, works visually as a a, a nice iconic piece of clothing for Danny. Yeah, it really, really does. So we get our first real reference to this kind of idea called that's known as Arbor Gold slash wine equals lies. And one of the more intriguing theories that's come about in recent years since the publication of A Dance of Dragons is this idea that Arbor Red slash Arbor Gold equals lies or falsehoods. So this first got popularized, I think, by a Westeros.org user named Apple Martini. And the theory kind of goes to the tune that whenever Arbor Gold or Arbor Red is brought up in the narrative, it usually indicates falsehood or deception, as I've said three times now. Apple Martini gives a number of examples in her OPs, such as Wyman Manderley's declaration to wash down fray pies with Arbor Gold, or or Littlefinger telling Sansa to serve Lord Lester Royce lies in Arbor Gold on what really happened to Lysa Tully. So here, though, the poison line, the poison line, the poison wine is a cask of, is it a cask of Arbor Red? So in this case, the Arbor Red as an exquisite vintage of wine disguises its true purpose, to poison and kill Daenerys Targaryen and the unborn Rago, and possibly Khal Drogo as well. Yeah, that's a great point. The constant connection of the wine to lies and how it ties in with how Cersei's always drinking wine and talking about love is poison as she's drinking it. So there's a great cluster of images and themes surrounding that. That works works so well in this chapter, especially of course you have the connection of red to blood. So there's it's just a it, it helps make the scene definitely tense and, and makes it work well when you come back to it with that theme in mind. It does indeed. So moving on to our theory and discussion portion of this chapter, we finally get another phase of the Vara's Illyrio conspiracy. So what is the Vara's Illyrio conspiracy? Again, for those who are curious, we it is basically the conspiracy that Vara's and Illyrio are attempting to, well, we're not entirely sure. Go back and listen to our episode on, on Game of Thrones Aria 3 to find out all of our kind of like, what does this, what is actually going on here? So to kind of also go back to Game of Thrones Aria 3, we learn there that Arya is eavesdropping on Varys and Illyrio as they discuss what's going on at Westeros and Essos. And one of the topics that Illyrio brings up is the pregnancy of Daenerys and what that means. So Illyrio says, nevertheless, we must have time. The princess is with child. The call will not bestir himself until his son is born. You know how they are, these savages. Lovely Illyrio. And that kind of presents a problem for Varys and Illyrio's plans. They know that war is coming soon to Westeros and the Dothraki are taking their damn time. So Varys tells Illyrio that, delay you say? Make haste, I reply. Even the finest of jugglers cannot keep a hundred balls in the air forever. And, you know, we talked about the Blackfire retcon and again... And if you believe that the plan, and if you believe the plan is presented by Tristan Rivers, the Golden Company Dance Dragons, here was in the works, at least in this phase of the story. First, Viserys Targaryen was to join us with 50,000 Dothraki screamers at his back. Then the Beggar King was dead, and it was to be his sister. Of course, whether this was the actual plan is up for a bit of debate, as we talked about in Arya 3, so give the one a relist if you like to. So regardless of which plan was in play, Varys and Illyrio had to deal with a problem. How to align the timeline so that Viserys and the Dothraki, or Viserys, the Dothraki, Aegon, and the Golden Company land in Westeros as the various powers in Westeros were fighting each other. So seemingly, if you want to believe this chapter, the answer was a true or false assassination attempt on Daenerys Targaryen. Eddard Eight, of course, has Robert ordering the assassination of Viserys after Varys brings the information to him, and then Varys does his whole, oh, we must do vile Machiavellian <laughs> things for the good of many shtick, before finally suggesting poisoning Daenerys uh, with the Tears of Lys. 
So combining what we know from Arya 3 with what Varys says in that council session, I, th I think we can probably both agree that what we have at work is Varys and Illyrio realizing that they have to move the timeline of the invasion up. Varys brings the intel to Robert, and then likely after the council session, sends Illyrio back to Pentos with Robert's order and instructions to hire an assassin. And then Illyrio hired an assassin posing as a wine cellar, or wine, wine cellar posing as an assassin, <laughs> to go knock off Viserys, Daenerys, and Rhaegar. But were those the instructions that Varys gave? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, right? I'm of the mind that prior to Illyrio and Varys learning that Viserys was dead, and prior to the birthing of the dragons, the plot to assassinate Daenerys was real. But Emmett, I believe you're wrong about this, right? I believe I have the correct opinion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. It's just that mine is the correct one. I, I, yeah, that's actually my my. That's what I believe as well. Is that mine? That's that's what it says in the First Amendment. Look it up. Yes. Read a book. Yes. Read a book. Read a book. Read the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So, was the assassination plot real? I say yes, and I'm going to give a few reasons why. So the first thing is that my read of the letter that Illyrio sends to Jorah was that it's supposed to be read to Viserys and Drogo after the death of Daenerys. Illyrio doesn't know that Viserys is dead when he dispatches the wine cellar, so the plot kind of reads as a means of jumpstarting the Dothraki invasion with Daenerys dead. And it's only Jorah's lovesick quick-wittedness to recognize that with Viserys dead, he has to move in to save Danny. right? That's a great point. I rest my case. Keep it going, sir. Dig that hole deeper. All right. And so this, the second thing that I think is worth pointing out is that at the time of the attack, Danny seems to be a bit of an expendable piece. Illyrio kind of all but says this to Tyrion in A Dance with Dragons, where he says, If truth be told, I did not think Daenerys would survive for long amongst the horse lords. So that's kind of weird, right? That Illyrio was saying this about Daenerys. Now, again... Everything that Illyrio says to Tyrion in A Dance with Dragons is suspect. I mean, there are moments where Tyrion is exactly pointing out, like, there is much more in this venture than coin and honor and a position in the small council for you, Illyrio. What are you actually doing this for? Um, and then finally, my, my third point before I finally, finally rest my place, and it's kind of a, an odd one, but the way the wine cellar talks to Jorah can be read as kind of a personal appeal to, jo a personal appeal to Jorah through Illyrio and his desire for home. You know, the sweet, isn't it? Can you smell the fruit, sir? The perfume of the arbor. Taste it, my lord, and tell me it isn't the finest, richest wine that's ever touched your tongue. So I do wonder whether the kind of sweetness offered by the wine cellar sort of reads like a message from Varus to Jorah, like, do your fucking job and you'll get your heart's sweetest desire, a pardon, potentially home as well. Like, that's kind of my read of it. But again, at the same time, though, the wine cellar is offering the thimble to Jorah Mormont himself. So maybe it wasn't a personal appeal to Jorah, but maybe at the same time, like Jorah is supposed to be like, read between the lines and be like, yeah, this is poison. Don't drink this. Give it to Daenerys and then just come home immediately afterwards. But I don't know. That's Those are my points for why I think that the assassination plot was real. But I know that you have a wrong opinion about it. Gold star, Jeff. We're going to put that right on the fridge so everyone can see it. <laughs> there are a few reasons I think this was a, a staged attempt and was never intended by Varus and Illyrio to succeed. A failed attempt on Danny's life, in my opinion, is more likely to result in a Dothraki invasion of Westeros than a successful one, or it's more likely to result in the kind of invasion that Varus and Illyrio want. If Danny dies, taking Rhaegar with her, what's Drogo fighting for? Maybe revenge, but then he just burned the Seven Kingdoms down rather than hand them to a Targaryen. He's definitely unlikely to actually be at the side of Viserys on the Iron Throne, as we said before. Drogo's motivation is to invade, as we see at the end of this chapter, is giving Rhaegar his grandfather's seat. That's what Drogo is in this for. If Danny and Rhaegar were gone, that motivation changes in a way Varus and Illyrio really can't control. And there are, there are a couple other details that stand out to me. The fact that Jorah is still reporting to Varus and Illyrio as of Karth <laughs> suggests he's not going totally off script here. Maybe he, he did partially, but th that does suggest he's still functioning as an asset for them. The merchant captain who swoops in after the wine cellar goes down, it's written that he knows what's happening without being told. That really suggests a setup to me, hmm. that he comes so quickly and seems to know what's happening. That suggests that he too has been tipped off, and so that this is a staged event. Well, Illyrio definitely could be referring to an attempt on Danny's life when he's talking to Tyrion about her being expendable. If the line, I did not think she would survive, sounds a little more passive to me, like an assumption of weakness on her part rather than active malice. And lastly, I would say that, I don't know, I feel like the assassin kind of sucks at his job. <laughs> like, he's so obviously flop-sweating, and he, he, you know, he, he gets targeted very easily. I find it hard to believe that Varus the Spider and Illyrio Munger with Cheese Mopatis 
couldn't find a better hired gun across two continents if they were really out to kill Danny. The wine cellar feels like a patsy to me, just this expendable asset that they just kind of dumped in the middle of it. I mean, for me, that's classic Varus, a numbers farce, a staged assassination attempt that was never meant to succeed. That's interesting. I mean, honestly, I mean, like going off off shtick for a second, I do think that there are plenty of reasons to think that the assassination plot might not have been real. I, I think like we ultimately go back to this idea of like, I don't know, we were talking about this in pre-production, so worth bringing up here. Varas and Illyrio, like they, they do a great job of like adding like mystery and conspiracy, espionage, those types of interesting uh, themes and character moments that George likes to put in A Song of Ice and Fire. But when you actually get to their real plotting, you're like, you kind of end up scratching your head a lot of the times. And I, and I know part of the reason why we scratch our head is because of the Blackfire retcon and, and knowing that George didn't have the Blackfires in mind then. So was he hoping that Daenerys, were they like actually backing Daenerys Targaryen at this point? I mean, there's that line by Illyrio where Daenerys notices that Illyrio is kind of like smiling when Viserys is like, I will invade the Seven Kingdoms and I will personally kill Robert Baratheon in battle. And Illyrio's like, kind of like, okay, man. Sure, kid. Sure, kid. You go ahead and you, you do that. And then, of course, like he lets, uh, you know, he lets Viserys go out to the Dothraki Sea when seemingly like he was an extremely important part of the whole plot. So was he actually important to the plot? Like as Tristan Rivers said, I don't know. I mean... I feel like not not really. And I feel like that part of the reason why George invented the Blackfires is that he realized that there was a kind of a lack of understanding and lack of motivation for Vars and Illyrio in a Game of Thrones. And so adding in this kind of Targaryen pretender character gives him the chance to do some interesting things and make their plot plotting and their kind of two-facedness in terms of Daenerys and Viserys much more interesting and much more believable, I think. I think ultimately that's where I'm, I'm coming down on, on that part of it. There is a certain self-defeating quality to trying to untie the knot of what Varys and Illyria were up to, because it definitely seems like there were multiple retcons going on behind the scenes, and that Martin may have even been alluding to it with that speech from Tristan Rivers about how the plan changes constantly, and it's never the same. That might be Martin winking to the reader going, yeah, I know, Varys and Illyria, their plan has been changing the background from book to book. That's just I'm just working it out. And as you say, they're kind of there to more to add the tone of mystery. Right. Maybe more than the specifics. And I feel like the reason that it's ultimately not going to detract very much is that Danny is going to have enough motivation from what she finds out about young Griff yeah. to go after both Varus and Illyrio. And that's clearly where both of their plots are heading is this confrontation with Danny. And that's going to be motivated enough from her end that I think it'll work regardless of all the threads not quite making sense. I agree there. Agree there. So I think that about closes us out for a Game of Thrones Daenerys 6. Thanks so much for everyone for listening to us. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOIAF where you can get exclusive episodes, early releases, and much more. You can follow us at Nauticast ASOIAF on Twitter or shoot us an email at Nauticast ASOIAF at gmail.com. Personally, you can find me at PoorQuentin or at PoorQuentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. So again, we will not be around next week. Sorry for that. Go ahead and listen to the other podcasts that are out there. There's kind of niche you know, smaller podcast, so to speak, uh, in, our, in our absence, of course. We'll be back in two weeks as Rob Stark finally reunites with his mom and they march off to war in a Game of Thrones Catelyn 8, a fantastic, wonderful, pathos-laden chapter, similar to this chapter, at least in terms of the pathos. But we have an army that's kind of on a more noble cause than the Dothraki are, are so to speak. A more noble cause, but definitely on the, on the precipice anyway. And yeah, there's some great emotional dynamics in that chapter between Catelyn and Rob, which is really one of my favorite relationships in the series. And a lot of it has to do with how well that chapter is written. So I'm definitely looking forward to that in two weeks, an ocean of time away, but it's going to be worth it. We'll have a great time with that episode. It shall indeed. So thanks for listening and we will see you guys in two weeks.